Switch it up, Jenny. 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 Switch, switch, switch it up. Switch it up, Jenny. Yes, switch it up. Switch it up, Jenny. Welcome to Switch It Up, Jenny. My name is Paulina, and today I talk with David, who came to New York from Pennsylvania and lives here already for about five years. He also had the chance to live in Europe, Jordan, and Yemen. Not the first choice for students who decide to travel. How this idea came to his mind and what impression Yemen left in him, we discussed over a glass of wine in a bar somewhere in Midtown. First of all, thank you very much that you made it today. Thank you for having me. And, you know, like, it's a, it's a very special episode because, I'm going to explain you, in the beginning I had this idea that we are going with my friends to a bar, having a glass of wine, and talk about something interesting, something about their, I don't know, experience, how they moved to New York. And so what happened next is my first guest was Muslim, so he didn't drink. My second guest, she drank, but uh, that specific day she was on pills and she couldn't drink. Okay. And then the third one, uh, she couldn't make it to the place where I found, so we ended up uh, recording at her place. So thank you very much for making it the closest to the initial idea. Glad that uh, we get together a glass of wine. By the way, regarding the, uh, the glass of wine, have you heard that now you can safely and legally drink on, on the streets? Of New York? Have you heard that? No, it's like I've a pub, public it. drinking. Apparently, it's, it's like just a, a strategy for you to get me arrested. <laughs> you can check it. The first thing I'm going to do after this interview is Google, Google, and see whether or not that's oh, true. Oh, I thought I thought you were saying like you would take your bottle of beer and and drink on the street. You also actually can urinate on the street, and you will not be taken by no, police. I tell you. That seems like a very un-New York thing to do. I mean, they make you clean up after your dog. That's what I thought. And um, also, like, it's such a big deal. It was such a big deal to put, you know, like, bottles, beer bottles in the in the uh, paper bags so that nobody will see it. Well, this is that's true. That's big news. It's going to change everyone's summer for the better, I hope. Was it also, like, in the whole America or only here in New York? How was well, it in Philadelphia? Well, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from Philadelphia. Every state has its own laws. Yeah. around drinking, uh, but I, I've never heard of somewhere where you're allowed to drink outside on the street. Maybe it exists, but not in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is very strict, and New York is very strict as well, or maybe not anymore. But Listen, so you, you lived uh, in Pennsylvania until how well, old were you? Well, I was born in the UK, but I moved to Philadelphia when I was a little kid. Well, I went through high school there until so I was 18, and I went to college in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And then, as you know, from there I moved to some other places before ending up in New York. Um, but I was in Philadelphia until I was 18 years old. My family is still there. So during college, I was at uh, the University of Richmond in Virginia, and uh, I did my junior year of college abroad in Jordan, in the mm -hmm. Middle East. And, uh, and then after I graduated from university, uh, I did some more traveling in, in America and Europe, but then uh, eventually I landed in Yemen. I lived in Yemen for three years. And then after that, I then came here. I went to SIPA, which is the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia. That's when I moved to New York. So. I was in school for two years, and then I've been working for three years, so I've been in New York for five years altogether. And how long you were in Yemen? 
was in Yemen from January of 2008 until December of 2010. So, so close to three years. So why uh, was it that you were picturing yourself working in international political affairs? Well, you know, I studied international relations as an undergrad, and I took some interesting classes in the Middle East. I wanted to, I got really interested in the Arab-Israeli conflict, and uh, this obviously is a very compelling uh, issue in world affairs, obviously, and so, um, and so Jordan was a good place to go and to learn more about the conflict, and also I was interested in studying languages, so I just, there was a good program there to study Arabic uh, in Amman, in the capital of Jordan, and, uh, and but yeah, I think after, maybe I got a little burned out on the Arab-Israeli conflict, and after I graduated from college, I wanted to do something a little different. And you know what's interesting about Yemen is that it's it's a very underdeveloped country, relatively speaking. It's the poorest country in the Middle East. There's not a lot of it's not very developed economically, and so there are very few expats there, and people generally don't speak English. You really have to know Arabic to get around day to day, and so and it's also a very very cheap place to live. So um, I think that's what attracted me to it. And I had a couple friends there who were studying Arabic. A couple of American friends who were studying Arabic there. I had a university professor that had done her research there in like the 70s. Um, and so I had some tenuous connections. And so I got on a plane and, uh, you know, I, I actually had a round trip flight. When I landed, I had a round trip flight going back to the UK after four weeks. I obviously didn't take that flight. Uh, I ended up staying there. How, how did it start, this, this trip? So you said that you knew someone there. I, uh, yeah, so I knew this guy uh, who was my roommate in Jordan. We were studying in the same Arabic language program. He was American. And then there was a, another American girl uh, who was studying on my program in Jordan, and she uh, she also was, was studying Arabic in Yemen. So I had these two friends, and, uh, and so yeah, I reached out to them. I said, I know you guys are both in Yemen. I'm thinking about coming over. You know, I was in the middle of traveling around Europe and doing some other things, and so. Um, and yeah, they said, yeah, just come. You'll find a job teaching English on the first day. And you'll make way more money than you need to like pay for rent because you know rent is nothing there. Um, and so uh, yes, yeah, so I just I bought this ticket and I landed. I got the first day I was there, I was put in the classroom teaching English, uh, which was kind of that was kind of my main job for the first year before I started writing for a paper. And uh, and there were very few foreigners there. There was just a small group of people, you know, a few dozen people studying studying Arabic, and uh, it was kind of a tight knit group. Uh, a decent number of young people, uh, people at the, at the UN. The UN had a lot of operations there as well, so there were some UN employees there, um, and uh, some of whom were like sort of you know very young and interesting and adventurous. Uh, as you can imagine, it's no one's first choice usually. You know, the typical person doesn't want to go to Yemen. Um, so, so you consider yourself as a, an adventurous person? Uh, uh, maybe not anymore. I was at the time. Was at the time. Uh, Listen, and your friends? They were foreigners or they were Yemeni? Uh, my two good friends were uh, the ones I knew before. They were both American. But uh, while I was there, obviously, I made I made American uh, Yemeni friends. The nice thing about teaching uh, was that I was teaching at a at a, uh, a co-ed a co-ed institute, and so women were studying in the classes with men, which is very rare in Yemen. Usually, the education is is uh, separated, segregated by sex, and so. Um, it was actually great because I was able to speak to and get to know Yemeni women to a certain extent. Because of course, that society, you know, women and men are segregated to a major extent. So this is um, this is very interesting. Can you tell a little more about your impression impression of uh, Yemeni women and their life? First of all, for the typical man, 
even if you're a Yemeni man, so if you're a Yemeni man, the only women you're really going to get to know in your lifetime are the women who you're closely related to. Sisters, your cousins, your aunts, um, your wife, of course, um, and maybe some of her female family members, but not many. So so the typical, typical Yemeni man doesn't actually know that many Yemeni women. And how he gets to know his wife on the wedding day? Yeah, the majority of... It, depends on which part of the country you're in and what kind of family you're from, but in the typical case in Yemen, a man and wife will meet, meet each other for the first time on, uh, on the day of their wedding. The Yemenis that I knew tended to be a little bit more educated from slightly more forward-thinking families, and so there were certainly some pockets of society where men and women can meet each other at work and become friends, then they would get the families involved and then they would get married that way. But the typical case is one in which um, the man and the woman meet, the, meet each other for the first night when they get married. And often their cousins, their parents know each other, something along those lines. Um, so, so the marriages are generally arranged. Um, and so how do Yemeni women feel about it? Well, I hope that one day you can do an episode and, and talk to a Yemeni woman so she can I tell so you. Too. But my, my somewhat informed impression is that, um, you know, I, I kind of went into it thinking that, you know, these women are really oppressed and they must be super unhappy. I think to an extent that that, that may be true, but in, that, in some respects, you know, the women told me that they're very happy with the situation that they're in. And, um, you know, for example, the women there, most of them wear the niqab, which means you know, their face is covered and you can only see their eyes. Um, you know, we think of that as sort of the bad thing. You know, they have to wear this sort of all black from head to toe. You can't really identify them as, you know, individual people, how horrible that must be. And then they would often come back with, well, you know, we don't have to worry about what we look like. You know, women in America, they have to sort of look great. They're just these, like, sexualized objects walking around everywhere. And, and they're just viewed as sex objects all the time. And whereas for us, we can just throw this black cloak on and no one knows what we look like. We can go out in public and we have anonymity. And they, they sort of say, well, we enjoy that anonymity. And they'll also make the point that, um, that uh, they, don't, they don't have to provide for themselves, which, you know, I see the negative side, that they're not able to work, very rarely able to work uh, outside the home. They sort of view the positive and say, well, look, you know, Yemeni women don't have to worry about caring for themselves. You know, the sort of men take care of them. So, you know, I, that's not my vision of what life should be like for women, but, you know, that's sort of, I, I get their comeback, you know, it sort of has a logic to it, right? Um, but on balance, I will say that I think the treatment of women, so I've said a few nice things about it, but about Yemeni society and everything, I, I really enjoyed my time there, but I think they treat women awfully, and in, in Jordan it's true, in Yemen I think it's true, and, you see lots of women who are extremely intelligent and want to do something with their life other than raise kids and cook and clean. And by and large, women, 99% of women who want to do those things aren't able to do it. So they don't have that freedom to make something else of their life if they want to. I mean, they often get married. You know, child marriage is a horrible problem in Yemen. You, know, you have women getting married when they're 13, 14 years old. Um, so, you know, I, I, on one hand, I don't want to be this cultural imperialist who says, uh, you know, that we do things the right way in America and they do things the wrong way there. I don't want to say that at all. 
Um, but I do think that there are some fundamental rights that women should have, like the right to, you know, to work or to be in government or to get an education. And Yemen scores terribly on all three of those metrics. In fact, there's a famous, uh, I think it's the World Economic Forum, ranks you know 130 countries or something uh, uh, on a kind of a gender gap index. And Yemen typically ranks worst, last place out of over 100 countries on this index. Now, I don't know if that's entirely fair. Uh, I don't know what all the methodology is. But I think they score it based on women's participation in the labor market and in government and the level of education they receive. And based on what I saw, Yemen scores pretty poorly on all those marks. So uh, I know that the young population is is really um, the number of young population is, is really high in, in Yemen, and normally it's young people who change banks. So, yeah. What is the views of, uh, of young people there on, on this particular issue? I had a little bit of a unique perspective on this because I actually, I actually uh, dated a, a Yemeni woman who, uh, she was totally westernized. Oh, listen, yeah, is it possible? Up, well, typically it's impossible. Typically okay, it's impossible. so how did, how well, did you make that? That's well, so she grew up, she grew up in, uh, in western countries, so she was totally westernized. She spoke English almost better than she spoke Arabic. And she, she only lived in Yemen. She, she almost never lived in Yemen growing up. She lived, she lived abroad, and her parents were diplomats. And so she actually, when she would walk around the city, people thought she was a foreigner because she didn't wear a burqa, she didn't wear a niqab, she didn't cover her hair. So for her, you know, the best disguise was sort of no disguise. But she had Yemeni friends, and she was, you know, she had her family network there and everything. So, but you know, we dated. I would say we dated sort of in secret, as it were. Like, oh, okay. So she had a couple of family members who, again, were raised overseas, who knew about our relationship. But the vast majority of her family and friends didn't know anything about us. And so a lot of what I can tell you about Yemeni women, young Yemeni women, I sort of am getting from her and through her perspective. She is, uh, she is a journalist as well, so I'll, I'll put her in touch with her. Uh, but in any case, um, she's still living there, or uh, I guess not. No, she she spends time there, but she lives she's back abroad now. And the situation has gotten a lot worse in Yemen. Obviously, I left in 2010, and uh, and the uh, the Arab Spring that sort of all happened shortly after I left. And so, as part of that, a lot of people who could leave the country sort of left the country because of the unrest. And um, and so, in any case, through that, I had that kind of door or window into the world of sort of young Yemeni women, some of whom I met who were a lot of forward-thinking young Yemeni women. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of young people, men and women in Yemen, who, who want change. And these are the people you saw on the streets. In, uh, obviously, the news crews were in, uh, in Tahrir Square in Cairo. Um, when you know, kind of the Arab Spring was happening there, and you have those same kinds of kids in in, in Yemen who, you know, they want a government that works. They want a government that's not corrupt. Um, they want education for women. They want economic opportunity and all these things. Um, unfortunately, I think Yemen is a little different from Egypt and some other countries in the sense that Yemen is so poor and they have so little. The, the population is so poorly educated. They're so impoverished in terms of natural resources. The unemployment is so high. The portion of the country that are uh, young people is so high. And so 
know, when you have whatever it is, 40% unemployment, call it, and the vast majority of the population is under 18 years old, it's sort of a ticking time bomb. And, uh, and also in Yemen, you have, Yemen has a very small amount of oil, a tiny, tiny percentage of what Saudi Arabia has, for example, but this small amount of oil essentially funded the government, and the government would use those funds to pay off the large tribal groups in the country to kind of keep them under control. Well, in the last few years, the oil has been running out, and so the government doesn't have that money to pay off the groups anymore, and so now you're seeing some more tribal conflict. And so when you have an atmosphere of tribal conflict, and when you have uh, water scarcity as well, they have a serious problem with water scarcity in Yemen, and so there's conflict over, over scarce water resources, and then we talked about economic opportunity being very scarce as well. So. When it's you, terrible. I mean, like when yeah, you. So we have this 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 confluence of issues. You can have all the youth, you know, protesting the world, but you can't really bring people together on a national scale to solve problems if the people are so fractured um, by the political and economic situation. And I haven't even started on the political conflict, which is, you know, you have in the south you have a secessionist movement because it used to be two countries, north and south. Some of the southerners want to leave. You have a rebel group in the north that has moved down and actually taken over sort of the central government. And there, many people in the country don't view this rebel group as legitimate. They're certainly not democratically elected. And then you have um, violent, militant, Islamist groups, sort of around, like you know Al Qaeda and Islamic State types around spread around the country. So it's not really a country anymore. It's more like Somalia or something. It's not maybe not that bad. It's not that bad. In that context. It's just impossible, really, to affect change, I think. And I should caveat all this by saying I did leave five years ago, so I, I do follow the situation in the news, but uh, I'm not up to, you know, on the minute-by-minute minute, uh, updates. No, but, but you, I guess you still have friends, sir. Your girlfriends, you have news not only from, from American media, but also... Well, I should say, I have Yemeni friends, like my ex-girlfriend, who I'm still friends with. She's left the country, um, but... I'm still friends with her, you know, on Facebook, you know, I have 20 or 30 Yemeni friends and I see the things that they post. I'll message with them sometimes, I'll talk to them on the phone occasionally. Um, so how, how it feels, I mean, when, when now you, you know what's happening and, and, I mean, I lived in, in Paris for, in France for three years. And I left, uh, I moved to the US in July 2014 and in six months the Charlie Hebdo happened. And I still remember this feeling, like you just left, you, you, you're almost still there. And it's, it's painful when you see all the uh, uh, events happening. And this is not even compatible, like the, the number of victims is not even compatible with Paris. So how do you feel? I mean, what, what are your... Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like I said, my, the people I was closest to have left the country. So they're sort of, relatively speaking, they're safe and sound. Um, I feel very sad for the Yemeni people. I mean, my one, probably my closest friend there is a guy who, very nice guy. He's a school teacher. He was my Arabic teacher for a time, but we're just, we're really friends. And um, he's a school teacher. He makes about $150 a month. And, uh, and he's got five sons. And, you know, and I talk to him and he tells me that he's got... You know, they've got electricity for a couple hours a day. 
it's very, very difficult for them to get water for bathing, for drinking. Um, and, you know, there's bombs going off. He lives in Sana'a, the capital. There's bombs going off in the capital. I mean, Saudi, Saudi Arabia is bombing with, with American support. Saudi Arabia is bombing uh, the capital city. And, and so, you know, it's tough to think of this guy that I'm good friends with, his five sons, really sweet kids. You know, they're, you know, they're basically living in a war zone. Um, so, now it's not quite as serious as Syria, perhaps, but it's, you know, it could, it could get that bad as time wears on, we'll see. Is it? Is it really not that bad as Syria? So, I just feel that it kind of gets less attention. But is it really because UN estimates 80% of people living in uh, Yemen need an urgent humanitarian help? For yeah. yeah 80%, know. can you imagine? Yeah, I, well, I believe it. I mean, even when I was there, the World Food Program was there because there was still. I was there for, you know, before the Arab Spring and all that. You know, the World Food Program is still there, you know, feeding people because there, was, there were internal conflicts even then. And so I don't doubt that it's, it's, it's a complete humanitarian disaster in Yemen. And it is a civil war. I mean, you have different sects within the country fighting each other. I don't think it's reached the kind of scale as the Syrian conflict. Again, I'm not up on the very latest, so I'm not the best person to speak to this. I don't want to minimize it. I think what's happening in Yemen, if, if 1% of what was happening there was happening here in America, there would be a huge national outcry, of course. So... Uh, and I think it's just one of those things where it's out of sight, out of mind. You know, if you're an American, you know, okay, you've got problems in Sudan, you've got problems in Syria, you've got problems in Yemen. I sort of understand that the average American doesn't really empathize with people that they haven't seen and aren't really familiar with. So, I mean, I obviously empathize, and it's, it's painful for me to to see Yemenis going through what they're going through. Um, but, yeah, it, it is what it is. And, and unfortunately, I have to say, I was interviewed a few years ago, right after I came back from Yemen, and uh, I sort of, the journalist there asked me what I thought would happen in Yemen, and I said, well, I think sort of five to ten years from now, it'll turn into something like Somalia. Um, unfortunately, it happened quite a bit sooner. I, just a few months after my interview, you know, the... the um, the situation, you know, deteriorated, and it's been getting suddenly worse. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see a lot of hope. I wish, I would love to, to have an optimistic note here, but uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about. Well, of course, like it's understandable, but to be optimistic, let's go back to that period before the, um, before the war, and when you were there, and the situation was different. So, can you uh, describe a little more? your perception of the culture. So you, American, came to... Okay, you were in Jordan before, so you are... Uh, I knew some Arabic when I landed. Yeah, yeah. so you, you were a little prepared, but still, I mean, you the whole your life you lived in America, and what was the most like shocking experience in terms of culture? Well, I hate to be foul, but you know, for me, it's like some of the sanitary things, you know, like eating with your hands. Okay. Uh, you know, the toilets obviously are functioned differently there, so I wasn't super happy about that. I was just like, wait, why am I? Why is there a hole in the ground? Like, what's the deal? You know? uh, which sounds silly, but it's just those were the kinds of things I think that got me at first. Um, but you know, look, I found Yemenis to be extremely welcoming. Uh, I really enjoyed the food. You know, it's one of those things where I could. I could have never had to pay for food, you know, I could have just gone around, start, struck up a conversation and people would invite me into their home for, uh, for a meal, you know, so they're very, very welcoming. Um, oh, I, I guess I will say one thing, 
you know, my Yemeni friend I was telling you about, who I knew, the guy who's a school teacher with the, with the five kids. One weird thing, you know, I probably had lunch in his home, I don't know, a hundred times, maybe, like Friday lunch, Friday being the holy day, and um, I never met his wife, or saw his wife. And so that was one of the weird things. But that was probably the weirdest thing, it's just, I can be best friends with this guy. Go, she cooked me probably a hundred meals over the course of three years. And, uh, you know, I never met her. So I think that was kind of the weirdest thing, it's just not women just being kind of, you know, kept away and endorsed. And that's why I mentioned it was helpful for me at first to be a teacher and to be able to interact with women that way. And then later when I was in a relationship with, uh, with the Yemeni woman to kind of get that insight. Well, yeah, I, I will also say, you know, I, I had a great time there. I found the people to be very hospitable. As a white American man, it's a very different experience. And so, although Yemenis don't like the American government, they're very, very positive towards foreigners generally. And I, they have a great deal of respect, I would say, for the American people. And they, they would often say something to me like, you know, a cab driver, a cab driver would say, oh, you know, in America, you guys are so organized and your country works and the government gets things done and they take out the garbage and you have electricity and you have water. You know, they, they sort of wish that their country had sort of a, a better functioning government. And, uh, and so they're very positive towards Americans in person. So you were, uh, you were never hiding that you're American? No, 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 no. I was very, uh, people were very cool about it. Um, having said that, I think that if you're not a, if you're not a white American male, you can have a very different experience. So American women I knew, sometimes they had to deal with sexism and men behaving badly, let's say. Um, and, you know, so I, I had female friends who were sexually assaulted, um, not, not like raped, let's say, but more just like touched in public or, you know, mm -hmm. um, people saying Which can happen in America as well. That's true, yeah, of course. It can happen in America, sure. I guess um, you stand out so much as, uh, it happens in America all the time, of course, but you stand out so much there, I think, as an American woman that they sort of feel like it happens to them quite a bit more, let's say. Now, I, I hate to compare countries. Women that I talk to who've lived in different Middle Eastern countries will tell me that Egypt is the worst for the treatment of foreign women, and Yemen they felt like was relatively not so bad. But the other thing I would say is there's there's strong sort of racism I, I I encountered there, not for me personally, but I had I had black you know African American friends who spent time in the Middle East and had different experiences than I did and weren't treated with the same kind of respect that I was treated with. Uh, How about your house? So I, I saw in one of your uh, video interviews that this building is like, it's beautiful uh, building that looks like it was built, I don't know, a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, in the old city of Sana'a, which is a world, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, I mean, they have a couple of mosques that really are, you know, a thousand years old. They have some very old buildings there. The building I was in was uh, probably only about uh, 75 years old, but it was built in the same style as some of these older buildings. And they look like gingerbread houses. That's sort of what we call them. It's, it's not very common, and correct me if I'm wrong, among Americans to, to live abroad, to go and have this experience for several years living abroad. Yeah. It's not. No, it's not. Yeah, I think that... Um, yeah, I mean, part of it, I think, is just proximity to the rest of the world. Like, you know, we're bordered by Canada and Mexico and South America, but it, it's not. It's not as extreme as you your trip was. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's a lot of pressure, and if you're 
let's say you're a high performing high school student and you go to a good university, you know, you kind of know that, hey, there's this, well, there's this pressure to get a good job out when you get out of college. And so, so I went to the University of Richmond in Virginia. A lot of people there moved to New York or Washington, D.C. to work in finance or consulting. And so I just resisted that a little bit. I think after I studied abroad in Jordan, I found something I was really passionate about and I, I wanted to do something a little different. And so. Yeah, I, I did this sort of, you know, I spent basically three years in Yemen plus some other traveling and, you know, close to four years before I came home and went to grad school. And so, yeah, I'm really glad I did it, but there's a sacrifice involved. I mean, you know, now I've entered a more traditional professional career, but I'm sort of a few years behind, as it were. Um, whereas I have friends who went straight into, you know, when they were 22, they went, they got out of college, they went straight into consulting or finance, whatever it is, and they've, uh, and you know now they're they're doing quite well professionally. But having said that, I sort of I'm happy with the way I did it because I, I kind of got to do something fun and, and interesting. Which you know these are memories that I'll treasure for the rest of my life. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I did it. And what I what I wish is that it was institutionalized a little more. Like in the in the UK, for example, in the UK it's much more common for people to do a gap year and to go in you know between high school and college to live abroad for a year and to do some kind of traveling. I you know whenever I talk to young people who ask me for advice, I say look. I tell them what people told me. What people told me when I was 22 was, you're never going to be able to go and live abroad. When you're 30 years old or 35, you're going to have a job, you're going to have a career, wife, kids, whatever it is. So you got to do it now. And so I, I, what I would, what I tell people to do is find a way to work better. Study abroad when you're in college. Do a gap year before college. Um, you know, maybe do the Peace Corps or something out of college, which is the kind of program you can do, and then you know, still come back and apply for the jobs or. If you're going to law school after college, take a year off, take two years off, like do something a little different. Um, but I, I think it would really, I think people would be a lot more mature when they enter the workplace, and a lot more prepared and a lot more self-confident if they had a little bit more diversity of experience. Uh, unfortunately, it's not kind of a regular feature of what, what people do in this country. But you, no matter all the like this disadvantages, the gap in your career, if you have a chance to change it, would you still go? No, no, not at all. Definitely not. No, I had such a good time, and I learned so much about you know, what... I think one of these perennial questions that comes up in politics or any kind of conversation is, you know, what do, what do human beings have in common, and, and what do they have that's different? And I think I got a, just a fantastic perspective, spending a total of about four years of my life with overseas. I think I had a great perspective on that question of what we have in common or what we don't have in common. And so I, I kind of think that that's, that's, a, that's just sort of invaluable. And, and you know, I've, I found in, in my career here, you know, in New York, I work in finance, that, uh, you know, people have been receptive to that. And, you know, I was hired for a, for a position. And I think that the employer kind of understood me if I didn't have a traditional background, but thought, hey, here's a kid who's seen the world and, you know, understands way people work and the way they click so um, and I was I was fortunate in, in that respect so um, so yeah I, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it but you know, there's an element of privilege involved not everybody has the option to go live abroad I mean, I, listen but there are uh, different programs with scholarship and yeah but I you know I came from a family pretty well I pretty well educated parents and who were I mean my dad is British so he's from he traveled a lot um, my, my mom is American she traveled a lot um, and so I was really encouraged to like do things like this and to think outside the box and to explore these kinds of opportunities. 
I went to a very good university where they uh, they had an office for you know for students to search for study abroad programs. That was very helpful. It helped me find my program in the Middle East. So listen, of course, it's all about education, but still, um, I think everybody can do that, even if you are not from a privileged school. If you those opportunities are certainly there. Yeah, I, I guess I was just calling attention to the fact that. Maybe they were a little more available to me than to some other people, but but, uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect ending of a story. Cheers. All right, thanks. It was Switch It Up Jenny. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or subscribe on Stitcher app. My name is Paulina. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>